Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. Standing of consent individualistic. Is it speciesist or human-centered? If you value consent, let's talk about robust, stronger understandings of this practice than the way that it's typically talked about within the status quo, especially, say, in the settler colonial U.S. So y'all know that we keep it survivor-centered here at Liberation Spring, and so trying to learn about consent from rapists, for example, would make no sense. And similarly, I would go so far as to argue that trying to learn about consent from settlers in a colonial society also doesn't make very much sense. So consent is a mode of perception that allows us to evolve out of some might equals right bullying mentality. Because colonialism is actually rape culture. And for sure on right Turtle Island or so-called North America, rape culture was systematized via colonialism and is still right institutionalized via ongoing colonialism. So the mainstream is unapologetically non-consensual within the settler colonial US and Canadian societies for sure. This is obvious when we see how normalized force and domination is from the military to cops to abusive relationships to sexual assaults. So from sex to law to medicine, this tool of consent helps us shed coercive ways of both seeing and being seen resisting the kind of compulsory vampiric power dynamics of the mainstream, mending the manipulation of our minds through cultivating right relationship. So let's nourish this substantial seedling. To back it up and to begin to get going, what on earth is consent? Why don't we look at a very basic definition and then we can get a little bit more complex? So at the most simplistic level, Merriam-Webster says it's a verb that means to give assent or approval. Okay, so how about we dive a little bit deeper? We can check out a definition from an amazing document we get into in Liberation Springs class called Just Pleasure, Revolutionary Approaches to the Erotic. It's called Violence on the Land, Violence on Our Bodies, Building an Indigenous Response to Environmental Violence. It was created in a partnership by the Women's Earth Alliance and the Native Youth Sexual Health Network. And please check out these organizations if you're unfamiliar with them in this document uh, because it's pretty rad. So they define free prior and informed consent in the following way. Quote, an internationally accepted principle 
that recognizes indigenous peoples' inheritance and prior rights to their lands and resources and respects their legitimate authority to require that third parties enter into an equal and respectful relationship with them based on the principle of informed consent, end quote. So what does this actually mean in practice? Here's one example from a graphic courtesy of Warrior Publications that the Kinder Morgan pipeline can't be built without the consent of the Sequimuk people and other nations whose territories would be impacted by this proposed project. And as we can see them actually clearly communicating here, quote, we've never provided and will never provide our collective free and prior or an informed consent, our collective free prior and informed consent, FPEC, the minimal international standard to the Trans Mountain Pipeline Project, end quote. And thank you for sharing the link to the Land Body Defense Org right in the chat, Parney. I appreciate that. Again, it's really worth checking out if folks have not scoped out this legendary document. And also on that front, if anyone's unfamiliar with Tiny House Warriors, please check them out at your earliest convenience and see how we can potentially materially support them. They've actually got an open invitation right now for land defenders to come support them. And for folks who can't make that commitment, they also need monetary and other forms of support. So on that front, actually, what's the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples have to say here? How is it relevant in particular? So it's also known as UNDRIP. It was adopted in 2007 by the General Assembly, even though four countries voted against it. Would you like to guess who? The US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. I'm using the name New Zealand and not Aotearoa, the actual real Maori name intentionally here. So the colonial government of so-called New Zealand was not feeling this, they voted against it. Uh, and so before we dive in, it's important to name now the UN is a colonial institution, so we know they're not going to advocate anything particularly liberatory. That's important to remember. With that qualifier in mind, though, let's actually check out the six areas where UNDRIP, or the United Nations <laughs> Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, actually addresses consent specifically. So in Article 10, you can see here it reads, quote, indigenous peoples shall not be forcibly removed from their lands or territories. No relocation shall take place without the free, prior, and informed consent of the indigenous peoples concerned. And after agreement on just and fair compensation, and where possible, with the option of return, end quote. As in, the U.S. or Canadian nation states don't just get to kick indigenous nations off their land because the colonial government wants to do something, or a corporation that the colonial government is in bed with wanting to do something. And for more on this, actually, Let's check out a dialogue called The Ransom Economy, what hashtag ShutdownCanada reveals about Indigenous land rights. It took place on December 9th, 2020, just a couple of days ago. How about we play a brief clip that starts with Professor Naomi Klein asking a question of Kanahu's Han Kana Manual of Tiny House Warriors. Let's just listen for three minutes and then we can come back together and get into it embodied by the Shutdown Canada movement and the Land Back movement. So Kenahus, since this is your framing, I want to uh, start with you. Beginning with settler governments, in what ways have you experienced Canada as economically holding your community or nation ransom? Thank you, Naomi. Um, here from the Sukhumuk Nation. Um, 
there's there's many different right ways and, and and particularly right now with our battle against the trans mountain pipeline expansion that proposes to and threatens to go through over um over half this pipeline threatens our nation, um, 518 kilometers of our Sukhumuk territory that's being threatened right now by Trans Mountain, which um, whether it's Trans Mountain or Imperial Metals or you know New Gold or any of these corporations, extractive industries that are coming in our territory, they're always the ones that have first choice and first access to our lands. Because the way that the government has set up here in, in Canada is to actually speed in access to our territories through land referral processes that go through the band office band offices and and people may say like what are these land referrals and how does that get access to your lands well corporations are bound by law to get the free prior informed consent of indigenous peoples and when they don't and and they don't go to the proper indigenous people to get this consent they're violating our laws and they're holding our lands you know, for ransom. They're saying, if, if, if you don't allow us to go through these lands, then we're going to arrest you. We're going to apply for injunctions. We're going to use the police and get enforcement orders. And we're going to physically remove you from this land. And my father called these injunctions Canada's legal billy club. But there's many different ways that Canada has gotten access to our territories without our consent. It's been happening since Canada first set foot on our lands. And therefore, I say that our lands have always been been held ransom by, by Canada. Yet Canada continues to say that whenever we blockade, like right here, where we're blockading the Trans Mountain Man Camps, um, that we're holding the economy ransom. And every time that Native people stand up, that we're holding the economy ransom. But it's the opposite of that, because our economy is indigenous economies and that includes the caribou the moose the deer the salmon the waters everything that flows from our land our culture that flows from our land our language that flows from the land and without land we aren't indigenous peoples we can't continue to practice our way without our land we flow from the land and you can't separate us from the land um, we are a part of our own indigenous economies um, we're never separated um, everything that's on our land is our relative and I guess I'll just, I'll end it there, but I just want everybody to know very clearly that Canada is very, in a, in a very um, meticulous and thought out process, finding ways to eliminate us off of our territories. And this is genocide. Um, federal reports have admitted it was genocide. So we're here today to expose this and to, you know, connect the dots on, on how this blockades and shut down Canada actually affect Canadian's economy, but also devalues our economy by pushing these pipelines and real estate development, other things through our, our lands. Well, thank you. Okay. How very interesting. I'd be curious to get a sense of what y'all took away from that. If you are down to share any takeaways in the chat, that would be rad. Um, okay, so first off, what a powerful check to the kinds of mainstream, right, settler colonial interpretations of consent that are super speciesist. So what did, right, one of the most legendary, right, land defenders alive on Turtle Island today just have to say as a counter, right, indigenous economies, right, in her ancestral territories include caribou, they include salmon, they include moose, right, this is not just some human centered, say, Christian-style supremacy, right? But she's inviting us to take seriously, right, especially for people, right, that might not be practicing modes of consent that are actually ancestrally rooted on any of the territories that y'all are tuning in from, that actually this is not just about humans, right? So we're going to get into that more shortly when we learn from some other folks so that we can ensure that for those of us that really care about consent, we're not being speciesist or just human-centered, right? But we're taking consent even more seriously because we're absolutely capable of that. And isn't that so very interesting? So for folks who, right, or rather tuning in from the Settler Colonial Canadian Society or for folks that are familiar with this, right, amazing, right, shutdown Canada movement that has been taking place for months now, right, 
wasn't it so clarifying to hear how she just broke down the mainstream colonial gaslighting, right, or propaganda around, right, the brave and necessary work of so many land defenders, right, from one side to another coast of the settler colonial Canadian society, saying what specifically, right, this settler colonial Canadian society says to land defenders, right, you're allegedly holding the Canadian economy ransom, right, but how did Kanahus just completely flip, right, that kind of lie on its head? Did you hear what she said? What did she say? She said, no, Canada has been holding indigenous people's ransom since Canada, right? So let's not get that twisted, right? Let's make sure that we've got any kind of historical grounding if we're actually serious about trying to understand what's taking place right now. So I especially want to right, invite y'all's attention to that gaslighting because it's so pernicious in colonial spaces like the U.S. or Canada, right? Parney sharing, thank you. I was not aware that human-centeredness is a Christian concept. Is it also from other religious perspectives? Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so this is one of those areas where just like some of y'all know, right, from Liberation Spring classes, one of the sort of methods I invite us to consider is to unlearn and then to remember, and then we can imagine. So in terms of unlearning, I bring in the Christian supremacism because that's still what's mainstream in the settler colonial U.S. right society and probably Canadian society also, I would imagine, but I want to speak to that humbly because I know less about that context. Uh, and so that needs to be unlearned because that's been forcibly imposed on the continent via colonialism for over half a millennia now. And then after, right, we unlearn, right, at various stages personally, but then also systemically, right, that Judeo-Christian supremacism that's the norm in the colonial society, then we can see when it comes to that remembering part, right, of the pulling weeds, planting seeds paradigm we get into here, what that actually looks like within all of our ancestral traditions, right? What are our people's relationship with animals? Is it, for example, this kind of dominion style approach that we see language for in the Bible, right? Humans as, right, dominating and domineering over all other life based off of this unnecessary hierarchy, right? Or is it something more consensual, right? Like what Kanahus was just sharing from her ancestral tradition and what is for sure the case in so many different traditions, um, although that remains to be seen, right? Parni sharing, ah, just clicked um, why BIPOC are dehumanized by white supremacy. Well, isn't that so deep also because that speciesism is at the crux of why when people say, like, oh, this cop was treating me like an animal, that that is an insult or that that is horrifying because of, within the settler colonial society, this human supremacy over animals, right? It's not a consensual, respectful relationship. It is one of domination, right, of objectification, of violence. Um, so, yeah, you're welcome for that for sure. Uh, and... So when Kanahus Manuel just shared with us, right, um, what she did, it's actually further backed up by another section of UNDRIP that we could have a look at now, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So how about we also scope out Article 11, Clause 2. So it reads here, quote, States shall provide redress through effective mechanisms, which may include restitution developed in conjunction with indigenous peoples with respect to their cultural, intellectual, religious, and spiritual property taken without their free prior and informed consent or in violation of their laws, traditions, and customs, end quote. As in decolonial reparations, we don't hear much about that these days, now do we? And the document continues, actually, if we scope out Article 19, you can see here, states shall consult and 
Let's be on the lookout for this consultation. We've got to get back to that later. States and states here means nation states like Canada or the US, not states like California, just to be clear in terms of the legal jargon that's getting used. So quote, states shall consult and cooperate in good faith with the indigenous peoples concerned through their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free, prior, and informed consent before adopting and implementing legislative or administrative measures that may affect them, end quote. You know what this means? Let me know if you have any ideas. Well, for one, that a project isn't consensual unless an indigenous nation can say no. As in, it's not a given that some colonial or corporate development project is gonna take place. There's actually an internationally recognized process that has to take place beforehand. The beforehand is referencing that prior part, the P in ethic, right? Free, prior, informed, and right ensuring that it's not just being bulldozed through after the fact as an afterthought, right? If any kind of development is going to stand the chance of actually taking place. Now, at this point, you might be realizing even more clearly that UNDRIP is not respected by the U.S. or by the Canadian governments at all. This is true. So let's see what Icortesara Rey Amanda Lickers said in the following guide that we opened with from that land body defense organization. So they say, quote, cultures of consent aren't normalized anymore and deep understandings of respect, humility, and honor have been abolished in a way, end quote. How deep is that for us to sit with for a moment? So on this front, right, does some of this UNDRIP language seem ambitious to you? Because if language from the United Nations, an unapologetically neo-colonial institution, seems ambitious, that's a really good litmus test to reveal how non-consensual the U.S. and Canadian nation states are. Of course, we could talk about, right, Israel's settler colonialism in Palestine and so many other case studies from throughout the planet, too. And we could continue on, right, just to make sure that we're not forgetting anything. How about we also scope out, right, Article 28, so of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. What's it say? Quote, Indigenous peoples have the right to redress by means that can include restitution, or when that's not possible, just fair and equitable compensation for the lands, territories, and resources which they've traditionally owned or otherwise occupied or used, and which have been confiscated, taken, occupied, used, or damaged without FPIC, their free, prior, and informed consent, end quote. And so again, this is legit laying out by the United Nations that there is absolutely a case for right, what many people internationally call decolonial reparations. It's not really much of a conversation in the settler colonial US. That can change, right? Which is part of a sign of right how colonized the US is, how much work there is to be done to really put that on the agenda to be taken much more seriously. Um, and of course, we can notice that some of the language here is totally colonized. Again, the UN is a neo-colonial institution. So when they're like ownership of land, occupation of land, use of land, of course, we can read right a lot of the English language biases into that to really be able to see right how that's limiting and foreclosing other ways we could understand what we're talking about. So just want to acknowledge that. And on this front... Right, kind of like I alluded to, right, when it came to the last article, um, we got to be on the lookout for what any consultation about any of this looks like, because that has just been, frankly, such a scam 
for sure in Canada and in so many other areas too, where the idea of consultation, right, has gotten used to make it look like something is happening that's not actually happening. So whether it's a, a federal government saying that they're engaging in consultation, thank you, um, but they're actually just trying to force something through that they already wanted, right? Whether it's on the behalf of a company, some corporation or otherwise, like a pipeline, for example. So many examples of so many pipelines that we could talk about here that are very relevant right now and for us to be understanding better to be able to deal with better, right? And so the thing about that is, and this is horrifying, right, to have to acknowledge, but one of the things that might really bring this home is, right, again, because consent is so often understood in an explicitly sexual context. So if y'all have ever noticed, or unfortunately, if you might have had an experience where you can tell that somebody is trying to have a sexual interaction with you and their take on consent, or like checking in to see if you're into that consultation, so to speak, they've already made up their mind in terms of what they want to do. So for them, it's almost like an afterthought. Like it's more like instead of ensuring that someone is actually enthusiastic and is actually interested in something, maybe it was their idea too. Maybe some vision was co-created. Rather, it's almost like they're just wanting to make sure that they right, cross all of their T's dot all of their I's so that they don't get in trouble, so that they don't get accused of being a rapist after the fact or something like that. Alas, right, many of us have those experiences still in our bodies based off of the mainstream colonial rape culture that is, right, the US, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, Israel, we could continue. And so hopefully that kind of individual example can kind of right, ground us so then we can extrapolate out to understand a little bit more of what this languaging is getting at. So again, if somebody is coming at you and you know that they want to do a thing and they're just like, please say yes, that's not exactly a strong form of consent or at minimum, please don't say no. That is not exactly enthusiastic consent, right? So again, because I know that within the mainstream, people interpret consent in super individualistic ways, hopefully that kind of personal example, right, can support our understanding this collective interpretation that's so important for us to consider here, right? Because again, right, we've been talking about for the history of Liberation Spring, how individualism is one of the bedrocks of capitalist propaganda, right? How hyper-individualism is absolutely a cornerstone, right, that keeps our minds colonized by capitalist propaganda. And so that's why it's so important for us to not only understand consent in an individualistic way, because you see what that kind of interpretation does? It's got us divided and conquered at the beginning of the conversation. And this is why, right, like we've looked at in so many Liberation Spring classes, so many, especially third world people's liberatory movements have non-negotiably asserted, right, we're collectives, right? Like for those of y'all that in various right, classes actually that I've taught in the past 12 years have watched the documentary Century of the Self. When we look at episode three, right, where some black power activists were talking with some white leftists at this horrific institution called the Esalen Institute, right, in so-called Big Sur in California, right, and these white people are like, develop yourself, right, and the black nationalists are like, no, you're under Understanding of self-development divides and conquers us, and our understanding of liberation is actually collective, it's kind of like that, right? So a version of consent that's super individualistic is not going to get us free, right? Because just that very personalized nature of it doesn't make space for us to attend to 
colonialism, rape culture, the fact that the systems of oppression that are subjugating us are structural, right? They're not individualistic. Their impact is deeply personal and intimate, but they're systems and structures and institutions. So if we're really committed to all of us getting free, then we need to have that bigger picture understanding of what consent is, what it can look like, what it has been like, what it's going to take, right? So yeah, major right red flag to be on the lookout for when people are saying like, oh, we did a consultation, but maybe like it wasn't even with the relevant people in a community that you'd need to be talking with. Like somebody just found a yes man to be like, I'm okay with your doing that. Can you please tokenize me? Can you give me some kind of carrot? Can I get some kind of compensation? fame, fortune, job security, right? Because this is so common. This happens in lots of conversations related to culture, right? Where somebody just tries to find a token or a yes man to be like, you're okay with my calling myself a yoga teacher, even if I'm not South Asian, right? And then they pressure one person that doesn't even represent a community. And then they're like, I got permission, right? That's not what consent is. And so all of this languaging can help people understand that, that might pre previously have had just a super individualistic interpretation of consent. So around, right, this Article 28 that we're looking to, right, of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, I'm curious to get a sense for y'all that are tuning in, has this happened in the territory that you're tuning in from? Like, let's look at this languaging again. Hang on a second. Native folks have got the right to redress, including restitution, as in reparations, if something has been stolen, <laughs> like land, like resources, like territories. Is that happening, right, in any of the territories that y'all are tuning in from? Or, right, is anyone even trying to make it happen? My hypothesis is that it's probably not for the vast majority of y'all, regardless of where you're tuning in from. However, if you do have a good counter example, please do share it. That would be awesome. Uh, and I would actually also like to bring in a quote here from someone who is my very first guest on my podcast, Feral Visions, Dr. Sarah Hunts, who's a native feminist professor at the University of British Columbia. Uh, UBC. And we had the pleasure of connecting actually in a land-based course that she co-taught several summers ago on indigenous self-determination up in Dene territory and Dene Day, um, put on by Dechinta. And if you're not familiar with them, they do absolutely incredible work, right? They're kind of seen as uh, one of the more substantial examples on Turtle Island of indigenous-led unapologetically decolonial land-based learning. And so how about we actually bring in a quote of hers related to some of what we have been talking about um, and specifically around dismantling rape culture so that we can even be in a place to be able to take uh, consent more seriously and oh so many quotes i've been sharing with y'all i don't know where the hell this one is all right let's just have a look at one and hopefully it'll be the correct one let's see what we have got here maybe is that yes it is okay so let's have a look at this quote from dr sarah hunts um, and it's from a legendary article of hers that's titled decolonizing the roots of rape culture Reflections on Consents, Sexual Violence, and University Campuses. So if y'all are not familiar with that, please do check out that article, um, or you're welcome to scope out the podcast interview that I did with her a few years ago. So you can see on the screen, here's what she's got to say in part. Quote, dismantling rape culture through an understanding of settler colonialism requires a radical reorientation of the ways we think about consent. If we want to get different answers, we need to ask different questions. So I'll say that again, right? If we're actually, for those of us that are unapologetically here for collective liberation, what does Dr. Hunt say? Quote, dismantling rape culture 
through an understanding of settler colonialism, right? Because again, colonialism is rape culture. So if we're tuned in from Turtle Island, there is absolutely no way to dismantle rape culture without dismantling colonialism, right? They're totally mutually constitutive. She says it requires a radical reorientation of the ways we think about consent, hence exactly what we have been talking about so far today. If we want to get different answers, we need to ask different questions, end quote. And if y'all want to see some of the questions that she's inviting us to ask, right, to be able to yield different answers, I really encourage you again to check out that article of hers. And so around that, right, what then might be some of the other priorities for us to substantially take seriously, right? How about we look at just the last couple of areas, right, from UNDRIP so that we really have a comprehensive understanding of, right, what this is supposed to look like internationally, allegedly anyways. Somebody tell the U.S. government. So how about we scope out, this is Article 29, Clause 2, quote, States shall take effective measures to ensure that no storage or disposal of hazardous materials shall take place in the lands or territories of indigenous peoples without FPEC, right, free, prior, and informed consent. Now, some of y'all might just be laughing, if not crying, when you hear this, because that is so counter, right, to what nuclear colonialism looks like in the settler colonial U.S. in terms of where nuclear waste is stored so often in Indian country on reservations throughout the Pacific, right? We're talking about some of this when we're getting into nuclear colonialism during our weed pulling of militarism earlier this week. Um, but it's just important, right, that we actually know this and that we talk about it if there's going to be a chance of this actually being implemented in any of the territories that we're tuning in from. Like, the government is supposed to ensure, right, that hazardous materials are not getting stored or disposed of without free, prior, and informed consent. And so, again, this might sound so pie in the sky right from another planet because of how colonial the U.S. is but the thing is it's important especially for folks that are in a settler colony like the U.S. or Canada to realize this is completely like the MO or the status quo in the U.S. is this hard in violation of international standards as designated like by this document right Fuck yes, Parney, for that shout out. Winona LaDuke is protecting her land against Inbridge along the Mississippi River right now, right? We have got pipelines to support the shutting down of all over the continent. So thank you for that shout out precisely. And how about we just look at the last of these articles, um, and I'm so appreciative of y'all getting into some of these details because they're so vital for us to be able to understand, right? Because so many folks worked so hard even for this languaging to be adopted. And so instead of reinventing the wheel for folks that are here for decolonization, for folks that are here for consent, we need to take this seriously, right? And push it even further in areas where it's inadequate, frankly. All right, so this is um, the last right section, Article 32, Clause 2, that talks about consent and UNDRIP. How about we see what it says, quote, states shall consult, oh, that consultation again, <laughs> we got to watch out for it because so often it's just, right, this kind of performative gesture that doesn't actually ensure FPEC, but states shall consult and cooperate in good faith with the indigenous peoples concerned through their own representative institutions in order to obtain their free and informed consent prior to the approval of any project affecting their lands or territories and other resources, particularly in connection with the development, utilization, or exploitation of mineral, water, or other resources, end quote. How epic 
are the implications of this when it comes to the way that water is being polluted so unapologetically stolen, whether it's Nestle in the so-called Great Lakes, right, all over, right, the so-called South American, right, and African continents today, and how many parts of the planet? And so again, it might be weird, right, to be hearing these words because they're so, right, structurally and overwhelmingly violated all over the world. But people need to know, again, this is an international standard that we can hold, right, these colonial governments to, right, so that we've got some languaging that, right, could have more teeth, right, that we could push to be operationalized so that we're not just starting from scratch, right, and so that we can use this, right, shared, right, cultural vocabulary that, right, applies globally, right, to ensure that, right, we can also connect in terms of international solidarity based off of some of this languaging that has come before us that's been laid out for us, right? So now that we have got into, right, all that different languaging, I'm so curious to get a sense of, right, what some of this looks like for y'all in the areas that you're tuning in from, right? Do you, are you doing work around this? Do you know folks that are doing work around any of this, right? Whether it's from, right, what Winona LaDuc is doing, right, to be able to stop in bridges, right, non-consensual pipeline construction, right, or similarly, right, in terms of the advocacy, the amazing, right, examples that Tiny House Warriors and so many other folks are laying down right now too, right, defending the earth in a way that benefits all of us, even if, right, she's the one whose wrist just got broken by cops, right, they're the ones that are getting arrested, criminalized, right, incarcerated, right, based off of their bravery and how they're throwing down. I'd really be curious to get a sense of, again, if you know folks that are working with, right, wanting to take this understanding of consent seriously. And to take it back, actually, right, uh, so we know that consent is not just individual. Like, for people that get, say, within the mainstream, allegedly people act like, say, being a rapist is one of the worst things that someone could be, right? Rape is allegedly one of the worst things that somebody could do or could experience, right? And so if that's that serious, right, which people rhetorically act like it is, when it comes to, right, our individual bodily autonomy, right? How about we expand that out in terms of orders of magnitude to honor, right? How much deeper the violation is when it comes to collectives of peoples, right? Like nations, right? Native nations being violated based off of how non-consensual these colonial institutions are, right? So, Remember how we talked about, right, that in terms of capitalist propaganda encouraging us to perceive everything individualistically, right? This is kind of like how in the mainstream, which is, right, a white settler colonial mainstream, right, people are so often so alienated, and so isolated, right? This is one of the things also that capitalism does to so many folks is it breeds this deep alienation, right? Colonialism does that too, right? So this invitation to collective understandings of consent, right, is a way for those of us that have been alienated by capitalism, that have been isolated by colonialism, can reconnect collectively in a good way. And, you know, around that, so Dr. Sarah Hunt also talks about in her scholarship on, right, decolonization and rape culture, something that's so important, if you ask me, which is actually encouraging us to take seriously, um, kind of like Kanahus was also getting into in the excerpt we listened to, 
what this means related to, right, our relationship with the earth, right, with other species, within our lives also. Like many of us that do practice cultural protocol in different settings know that, you know, say if you're entering into a forest, right, according to cultural protocol in a whole lot of different parts of the world, right, like maybe you offer a chant or you offer a prayer and then you wait. And then you see what the response is that you get. And then that determines whether you actually enter into that forest or not, right? And so I know that even hearing me say that can potentially be heartbreaking or devastating for folks that have been, right, severed, especially violently from your cultures, including forms of cultural protocol. And so that's why, right, it's so important for us to, right, see what that looks like on the territories that we're tuning in from. And then also, if those are not our ancestral territories, to potentially see, right, what modes of consent did your ancestors practice potentially? And maybe there might be some things that you're not into that you decide isn't a tradition that you wanna carry forward. However, where we're able to engage in that memory work, as challenging as it might be, that's real for a whole lot of us, right? If not most of us potentially in settler colonial settings, right? At least then we've got the option to potentially right, embody some of that if we have done that memory work to be able to even know what alternatives exist. Now, I know that I have shared a whole lot, so I do wanna right, invite y'all, if you've got questions or feedback, right, maybe something that was really right, animating for you that we've gotten into, please feel free to share in the chat. I'm super curious to get a sense of what y'all are sitting with related to consent. And, you know, it's also just so important for me to name, so one of the ways that individualistic modes of consent can really mess with us um, is, again, when it comes to obliviousness about cultural safety in colonial settings, right? Have you heard the term cultural safety before? You're welcome. Um, so if y'all haven't, I really invite you to check it out. And one of the reasons why I bring that in here is because, right, that for so many folks, right, is actually, um, it's something that Maori folks actually in Aotearoa or in so-called New Zealand, right, have done amazing work around for the past few decades, right? Cultural safety has epic implications when it comes to consent, right, especially when it comes to colonizers vampirically taking a la rape culture. I want something. I'm going to benefit it from it. It's mine, right? So what would cultural safety counter with? Again, we could look at an example like what kind of gets superficially called appropriation, but when it comes to spiritual theft, like if a community collectively has not consented to an outsider, right, having some relationship with their culture, the outsider doesn't get to have that relationship. And I bring this in because, right, it's so widespread in the mainstream for us to see this paradigm where say some, the mainstream term is culture vulture, but that is kind of speciesist, right? Some thief, some appropriator, right? Will try to justify, right? Them being culturally unsafe, right? Them being non-consensual by saying what? Like, I know a person of color and they said this was okay, right? Or I know someone who's a woman or who's poor or who's fill in the blank identity and they authorized this. And so I'm curious to know if any of y'all have heard that claim before. The thing is, when we think about collective consent, we realize immediately that's not a legit claim, right? Or when we think about, right, beyond collective consent, also when we think about cultural safety, then it's obvious that that's not a legit claim. Because if you didn't get permission from everyone collectively, then stealing from somebody else's culture or land base or territory isn't acceptable, right? And so do you see how also, right, this collective understanding of consent that we've been talking about and cultural safety also as a paradigm, it can help us counter, right, that kind of, super popular paradigm of people just trying to find a token that's like, they're from your group and they said it's okay, so I'm gonna keep doing whatever I want as some, right, 
thieving opportunist, right? You see how that paradigm provides some language to help us counter, right, when people are, right, being vampires, uh, so that then we can say, like, oh, actually, that's not culturally safe. Like, as a collective, our community didn't say you're allowed to sell some, right, monetized version of our culture, right, or you're allowed to invade our territory, or you're allowed to pollute our water. Like, within our culture, you don't get permission by just finding one yes man, so to speak, or yes person, right, and just tokenizing them, just giving them some incentive or some reward, and then surprise, surprise, right, some sellout, so to speak, sold out, and was like, you can do whatever you want. I said it's okay. If that's not even the decision-making process that's culturally relevant for our peoples, that doesn't count, right? That is null and void, so to speak, right? So that's also part of why some of this languaging can be so beneficial to counter that kind of stealing, right? Whether it is of land bases, of water, of other species, of components of our cultures, or whatever some colonizer is trying to take from us non-consensually in some kind of coercive way, right? Where there is manipulation. And so around that, I would actually also just really want to invite you to check out, um, there is this so many rad, right, Maori pieces to scope out from Aotearoa related to cultural safety, right? But there's one medical, right, journal in particular, an article that's called the following. There's consent, quote, unquote, and then there's consent. Mobilizing Maori and indigenous research ethics to problematize the Western biomedical model. I'll say it again. So this article is called, right, and it actually just came out this year. There's consent, quote, unquote, and then there's consent. Mobilizing Maori and indigenous research ethics to problematize the Western biomedical model, right? And one of the reasons why I wanna bring in this piece in particular is because it actually gets into the history, right, of this notion of informed consent in a medical context, right? And then it helps us understand, right, in case this isn't super clear for us, how completely inadequate and unacceptable that mainstream medical model of informed consent is, right, for oppressed peoples, right? So kind of getting into, right, especially when it comes to, right, the Nazi Holocaust, how some, right, biomedical model takes on consent, right, emerged out of that in a way that, right, is already incredibly sketchy historically because it's like, oh wait, why did it have to take a Holocaust on the European continent for people to start right taking consent seriously when it comes to medical experimentation? Because you know what, that already doesn't even acknowledge so much non-consent that has been happening via colonialism for centuries prior to World War II, right? And so again, for those of us that care so much about consent, right, that we're committed to doing better than that, right, there's really nothing like scoping out some of this amazing research and best practices from Native communities that are saying, oh no, that's actually inadequate in terms of meeting our needs. Like, here are some more substantial, right, ways of practicing consent that could actually be much more meaningful. And you can better believe one of the principal things that they get into is, again, cultural safety and is also, again, collective consent. Because if we're divided and conquered at the beginning of talking about consent, that's not the most auspicious beginning, right? I could even share just a little bit of, right, um, the abstract of that paper to really encourage y'all to check it out. And so it says, challenging Western research conventions has a strong documented history in indigenous critical theory and Kaupapa Maori research discourse. This article will draw from the existing research in these fields and expand on some of the core critiques of the biomedical model in Maori research environments. Of interest are the tensions produced by an over-reliance on individual informed consent as the panacea of ethical research, particularly when the research concerns 
communities who prioritize collective autonomy. These tensions are further exacerbated in research environments where knowledge is commodified and issues of knowledge ownership are present. So here's what I was referencing related to thievery, appropriation, everything that we've been talking about together, right? Continuing a critique of informed consenting procedures, this article considers its role in emulating a capitalist exchange of goods and perpetuating a knowledge economy premised on the exploitation of indigenous peoples, resources, and knowledge. Finally, the article will consider emerging ethical concerns regarding secondary data use in an era of big data. So again, if y'all get the chance to scope that out, I really want to encourage you to do so. And also just a little bit of a heads up related to that language of resources, kind of like we talk about in almost every Liberation Spring class, right? That so often is a super colonial, right, way of perceiving which is why some people talk about it as a verb, like something getting resourcified. Like, is somebody resourcifying that lake, Nestle, because they want to steal the water from it, right? Or is somebody resourcifying so-called rare earth minerals, Tesla, right? Because they want to right, extract so that then they can benefit. So that's also the piece related to the way that a capitalist economy totally colonizes our understanding of any of these topics at the outset also, unless we make sure that it doesn't. Uh, and one thing that I would also just want to share in closing is if y'all get the chance, I'd also really invite you to check out the podcast interview I did with Quill Violet Christie Peters, this Anishinaabe Quay uh, artist and activist and scholar who also talks about consent and land defense in really incredible ways. And she is also actually the person that designed the Feral Visions logo. Um, and when we were in dialogue, she actually shared that when she first started practicing consent, it was actually super triggering for her since it was so unfamiliar or new. So I just want to mention that because I know that for a lot of us, depending upon what our baseline is, it's just so real that sometimes it can right, be grievous for us to up our standards, right? So even like just getting into some of this United Nations languaging that we've been looking at together, right? To be able to see like, wow, people actually agreed all over the world that this is what consent should be looking like. And then to contrast that with, right, how standard operating procedure in the settler colonial U.S. and Canadian society is exactly the opposite of it, essentially, right? That can be devastating. And so I really just want to honor, right, as we're imagining practicing consent in even more robust and substantial ways, right, it can be heartbreaking to acknowledge what we might have previously experienced that was unapologetically non-consensual, right? And how that impacts what we bother even saying or not, what we bother even dreaming or not, how we show up and how we don't, right? Like if you said no, do you imagine that somebody would even care? And if you've said no so many times and somebody didn't care, does that mean that eventually it impacts whether or not you even bother saying anything? Because this happens collectively, right? When it comes to thievery, when it comes to our horizon of our imagination more broadly. So just wanting to put that piece out there related to grief, right? And and real invitation to honor, right, with a topic that can be super evocative, right, if that's at all relevant for any of y'all, right, to encourage yourself, right, to see, right, where you might be up for it, right, if there are some feelings that might emerge that you might be open to acknowledging around all of this. So just wanting to put that out there. Well, I can't believe that it's already just about time for us to begin wrapping up. 
Um, so in closing, if you want to share any feedback related to this, you know, I would love to hear it. Feel free to share it in the chat. Um, also, if you know anyone that might benefit from, right, this dialogue related to consent, I totally encourage you to share it out. If you're able to kick down any kind of donation to be able to support this insurgent intellectual production, that would be rad via PayPal or Patreon. Um, and also, right, we did a shout out to so many rad organizations that desperately need support, right, monetarily in terms of, right, bodies on the line. Um, so please do check them out, Tiny House Warriors and others. That would be really amazing and I imagine potentially super inspiring for folks. Don't plagiarize me if you want to share any of these ideas. Please cite your sources. Um, and thank you so much for that shout out, Parney. I appreciate it. All right. Um, can't believe we're wrapping up our second to last week of weeding and seeding. I really hope to see y'all next week for our closing week of the autumn prior to the solstice. All right. That's all for now. We can go ahead and close out of respect for y'all's time. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyay, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil. Deceitful and coward, people in power. All power to the people is the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours.